Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Elevation with Stephen Furtick podcast was created with you in mind. This is a podcast for those feeling discouraged or needing guidance from God. Together in this podcast, we'll dive deep into scripture, uncover the powerful truths that will help you rise above your limitations and embrace your full potential. We're here to equip you with the tools you need to conquer life's challenges. Listen to Elevation with Stephen Furtick every Sunday and Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Jesse Hempel, host of Hello Monday. In my 20s, I knew what I wanted for my career. But from where I am now, in the middle of my life, nothing feels as certain. Work's changing, we're changing, and there's no guidebook for how to make sense of any of it. So every Monday, I bring you conversations with people who are thinking deeply about work and where it fits into our lives. We talk about making career pivots, about purpose and how to discern it, about where happiness fits into the mix, and how to ask for more money. Come join us in the Hello Monday community. Let's figure out the future together. Listen to Hello Monday with Jesse Hempel wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to She Pivots. I'm Rebecca Minkoff. Welcome to She Pivots, the podcast where we talk with women who dared to pivot out of one career and into something new and explore how their personal lives impacted these decisions. I'm your host, Emily Tish sussman Welcome back to She Pivots. I'm your host, Emily Tish sussman Today, we have a true trailblazer in the world of fashion, an entrepreneur and an inspiration to many, Rebecca Minkoff. We all know Rebecca for her incredible style and innovation in the fashion industry. I mean... We all know her iconic morning after bag. As a fashion designer, businesswoman, certified cool girl, and the co-founder of the globally recognized brand that bears her name, Rebecca has left an indelible mark on the industry. Her entrepreneurial spirit pushed her to embrace the intersection of technology, social media, and fashion. She became an early adopter of the groundbreaking fashion technology, allowing her to grow her sales while connecting with her audience. Despite success after success in her industry, her real pivot came after she returned from maternity leave and found herself looking to make an impact in a new and different way. Thus, both Superwoman, her podcast, and the Female Founders Collective were born. 
Stay tuned as we delve into her story and hear how her mindset shifted throughout each new change and venture. Enjoy. My name is Rebecca Minkoff. I'm a fashion designer and the co-founder of Female Founder Collective. I have a podcast, Super Women with Rebecca Minkoff, and I'm a best-selling author, Fearless. And you have four kids. And I am a mother with four children. Which blows my mind. <laughs> like three sends me into chaos, four, I cannot imagine. I'm going home after this to take a nap. <laughs> a well-deserved nap. <laughs> Where did you grow up? So the first nine years of my life was San Diego. The second nine years of my life was Tampa, Florida. That was not my parents' intention, but they saw that there was nothing happening in Tampa. And that was great for raising children and not getting, having them get into trouble. So my dad was a doctor and he had got an opening in Florida and he was like, well, I want to change the scenery. And that was it. You know, you really launched your career, made a name for yourself first as a fashion designer. And you said that the first thing you designed was your bat mitzvah outfit. It was. It was the first thing that I designed and wore successfully. I'll say that. I had the opportunity to work with this New York City designer who had moved to Podunkville where I lived. And she taught me how to sew and make patterns. And I was so excited. And as a young girl at 12 turning 13, when you're entering womanhood, but you don't look like a woman, I was like, I got to design a dress that like maybe can show off my burgeoning bosom. That was, <laughs> it's just weird that that was like for my bat mitzvah. That's what I wanted was like show off my chest. But I had like double A boobs, <laughs> aka nothing. And so I was like a square neck, like medieval times. And then I'll get a, like a little push-up bra to help me. Soon after her show-stopping bat mitzvah outfit, Rebecca continued her creative endeavors and enrolled at a performing arts school as a dancer. And then in high school, I hit a really tough time where my teachers, I don't want to pivot us too hard, but I was a dancer in a performing arts high school, but kept getting told like, you're too tall, you ruin the symmetry, your boobs are too big, like just everything terrible you could tell a young woman. And I was a painfully thin, very awkward young girl, and I couldn't fit into regular clothes. And I was bullied for it. And being able to sew and make things fit me gave me a lot of confidence and it made me feel incredibly empowered. And so I just became addicted to the idea like, oh, it doesn't fit. No big deal. I can, you know, take it in or add this to it. And so that was just something I just I wanted to sew all the time. And then I would make things for my friends and it just became a great way to like hang out and you end up making something. So you grew up Jewish. Was that a big part of your identity you had about mitzvah? It was a huge part of my identity. It was every Friday was Shabbat. I had a bat mitzvah. My dad was very serious about observing the holidays up until the point, I would say about 15. And then all of a sudden it was like, well, we did that, which was weird because he was so strict about it. And so I was already by that time I went to Jew camp starting at 13. And by 16, I was going to Israel for six weeks for a, a workshop program with all the other kids who were part of the camps. And um, at 18, I had the opportunity to go live on a kibbutz for a year and all my friends were going. But I was so desperate to get here and to start working and designing. And I felt like if I took a year off getting drunk and living on a kibbutz, that I might be, you know, behind. And so it was it was one of the hardest decisions I've ever had to make was to not go on that trip. Mm. And here you being New York. Yeah. So after high school, you were like, get me to New York. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so I thought I wanted to be a geneticist. And so I went to Johns Hopkins like to like see the school. And I thought, 
I will die in the laboratory. I will just not make it. And if I have to do this for seven years before I can practice and I I really found out like what it takes to be in that world, I thought, wow, I don't want this. And then I was like, maybe I don't even want to go to college. And in my house, my parents are kind of hippies. Everything was untraditional. So, you know, they said to any all of us, like, it's cool if you want to go to college, but you don't have to. And if you do, you're paying for it. And it was kind of like no pressure. So none of us actually ended up going. What else was non-traditional in your household? I would say that the things you think a mother should do for you weren't done or a parent, you know, whether it's it's the little things like signing you up for summer camp and it was like, no, here are the forms, you fill them out. Down to my brothers wanted to go visit their friends and they were 13 and she put them on a Greyhound from Tampa to San Diego. So I I think everything we wanted, we had to work for. There was a ledger in the kitchen and it was about how, you, you know, what you earned. And I had to cook dinner twice a week and I had to do dishes twice a week. And so some of those things are normal, but I think a lot of this hands-off approach to like, if you want to figure it out mm-hmm. was really there. I had to negotiate at age nine with my art teacher about her prices because my mom was like, if you want to do these classes, they're too expensive, but you can talk to her about lowering the price. At the time, did you realize that your parents were a little more hands-off than others around you? I started realizing it and I was angry about it. And I was pissed because I would see like my friend would just, she celebrated Christmas and I would go there. I'd be like, you get all these presents? I get one. And your parents take you on trips and I have to earn, like, I was just like, whoa, this is a different world. Yeah. But I'm trying to raise my children in the same way. You want it, you earn it. Mm-hmm. And I'm hoping it rubs off on the entrepreneurial side on them the way it did with me. Yeah. At what point did your perspective flip on the parenting? Having not my son, my son, my 12 year old has always been grateful and gracious. But my daughter, like, I want, I want, I want, I want. And living in New York City, you know, and I'm like, oh, no, we are not taking that route with you. Mm-hmm. You will earn this. Yeah. Yeah. It's hard. It's I, I think it's particularly hard in the city. But I also think like you get invited to a party in New York City and I don't even know the words for it. Just the goodie bags and the bouncy cat, like everything, the abundance abundance is so much that even if you're not providing it to them, they're seeing it and they know it's possible. And it's hard to be like, all right, come back down to earth. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. We started talking about this incident. Drugs and uh, officials cover up <laughs> you couldn't believe it from iheart podcasts it's like the police knew who he was before they got here a story about money power and corruption the medical school dean at usc was leading a secret double life he's breathing right now yes he's absolutely breathing i'm a doctor actually there's no way that that guy's a doctor i'm paul pringle and i'm an investigative reporter for the la times This is the story of an investigation that starts in a hotel room in Pasadena, California, and reaches all the way to the top of two of the most powerful institutions in the city of Los Angeles. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. This is Fallen Angels, the story of California corruption. We're always going to have predators. It's the good people who stand by and do nothing that allow them to flourish. 
Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Across Generations, where the voices of Black women unite in powerful conversations. I'm your host, Tiffany Cross. Tiffany Cross. I want you all to join me and be a part of sisterhood, friendship, wisdom, and laughter. In every episode, we gather a seasoned elder. But even with a child, there's no such thing as the wrong thing if you love them. Myself, as the middle generation, I don't feel like I have to get married at this big age in life, but it is a desire I have and something that I've navigated in dating. And a vibrant young soul for engaging intergenerational conversations. I'm very jealous of your generation (laughs) that didn't have to deal with Instagram and Tinder. This is Across Generations, where Black women's voices unite, and together, you know how we do, we create magic. magic. Listen to Across Generations podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, so back to your journey. Was it always fashion that attracted you? Like, what, what about fashion? Okay, going back for Hanukkah every year, we would get like one thing and I would always get a magazine subscription to W or Vogue. And then my brother would steal it and I would kill him. When it would finally come to me, I would devour it. And I felt like I have to be in New York. That's where everything's happening. And for everyone listening, it's pre any social. I mean, there's nothing. Magazines are it. So my brother had gone to a party and he came home one night and he said, I just met a designer. He was in from New York doing a trunk show at the uh, local podunk Nordstrom in Tampa. And um, he gave me his number. He said he takes interns. Maybe you should call him. And so I literally called this guy and he picked up. He's like, yeah, come up. When do you want to come up? We pay minimum wage. And I was like, oh, it's that easy. Okay, I'll be there. And I told my parents, I was like, so I'm moving to New York. And I'm going to start working. And, you know, we got to go onto Craigslist and find me an apartment. And my mom and dad were like, we're not paying for you to go to an apartment. Like you wanted to do this. You figure it out. So what we finally hobbled together was I lived with my friend in Fordham University. We shared a bed. He was gay. So it was like, it was fine that we shared a bed. He would sneak me in every night. And then over like Rosh Hashanah, my parents came up and made a deal with my cousin. They're like, all right, she's going to sleep on the floor and babysit your kid. Will you let her live with you? And that was, you know, how it all started. So what did you do as an intern? So my first day, the CEO who ended up becoming a mentor uh, was like, "Ugh, you're just another pretty girl. He's let in here. Day one was you're going to work in the shipping department. And I was so angry. And I was like, I am better than this. But I really learned a lot about packaging and shipping. And then it was like, organize a supply closet, answer the phones, cut swatches, call these stores, make appointments. And every day was different. And as I began to get used to sort of not knowing what I was going to do that day, it just got exciting to be able to learn every sort of part of the business. And then about six months in, I said, I think you should hire me full time. I've proven my worth. And I want to work in the design area. And she was like, great. Yes, you have. So she began to design for Craig Taylor. But all the time, she continued to keep one foot in as a dancer, thinking that might be the path she would pursue. I was so happy to be there. And I was still kind of like, do I still be a dancer? I was taking classes at Alvin Ailey and I had gotten into their two-year certificate program. And I was like, oh, you know, I I forget where I was, but someone was like, you should be a model. And I was like, maybe I'll be a model until I went into a casting and the guy was like, you know, you're really hairy. (laughs) 
And then he reached over and he's like, and you got to get rid of this. And he grabbed my stomach fat. And I was like, I'm going to just put that idea to bed because, okay, maybe I'll be a dancer or a designer. And then I said this to this woman, Kumi, the CEO, and she's like, you need to decide what you want to do. Like, you can't be all over the place. It's time to get focused. And, you know, what is it? And I was like, okay, she might be right. So I said, I'll pursue design. And so I ended up working there for a total of around three years. Wow. Do you feel like that was the right advice for you in that moment? It was because I was just like, maybe I'll be this and maybe I'll be that. And I feel like those types of maybes are great if you're 16, but they're not great if you're 19. Hmm. And you and you decided not to go to college and you moved to New York to work for a designer like like pick a lane. Spoiler alert. She did. She started small, custom making a small collection of pieces herself. I had a five piece collection. I Live New York was one of them literally bought off the street, but cut up and be dazzled because that was pre Etsy and people wanted DIY. And an actress, Jenna Elfman, uh, asked for it via my brother. Again, he seems to be a, a connection. And Senator on September 9th, she wore it on Jay Leno two months later and said my name on national television. She has a beautiful and talented actress and a lot of fun. She can be seen on the sitcom Accidentally on Purpose, which airs Wednesday nights on another network. <coughs> Please welcome Jenna Elfman. And that was kind of like the big moment of being in the magazine and making all these shirts and nine months straight of that, that shirt. Riding the high of her new success, it was her mentor that once again played a key role in nudging her towards her true potential. And then Kumi, the same CEO, called me and was like, you're fired. Go do what you love. Wow. Yeah. You were so young. Was I that was 21. Scary? Yeah, it was scary. But I think that when you have nothing, right, and you are fueled by your work and, and by potential and opportunity... I was like, what's the worst that could happen? I end up on my parents' couch, right? And to me, that was like, okay, that'll suck and I'll have to regroup. But like, let me just try it. Yeah. Okay, so you did the t-shirts for a little while. Yeah, about nine months. It's all I did. Just this, these five t-shirts. Yes. And then I started calling stores and I was like, by the way, I have more than a shirt. You know, let me show you. And then one store in East Village was like, I'll take this blouse on consignment. And then I would d- literally give him the blouse and then go into Union Square and pass out postcards like new designer alert. new. Like I was one of those people standing there like handing this out. And then I'd run back to the store and be like, did it sell? And he'd be like, yeah. And I'd be like, all right, I, I passed out 500 postcards for one sale. So if I want to sell more, I got to do a thousand. And I would go back to Union Square and, you know, I was scrappy. I would find out who magazine editors were. Email was new, but I would like figure it out and then email them all images. And then I found one burgeoning website called Raven Style and she would buy stuff. And I'd be like, I need the deposit before I make the goods. Yeah, I was about to ask how you had the capital and how you had the connections to be producing at that kind of scale. Oh, it was not a, it was not a big scale. It was a very tiny scale. The amazing woman from Raven Style would give me a deposit because she knew I had, didn't have it. So she'd give me enough. I'd go uptown, buy the fabric buy the crystals, make it, and then deliver it to her for the balance of the payment. So I worked like that for a long time. And then I said to my dad, I would like to open up a credit card. Could you co-sign it with me? And because he had great credit, I got a lot of money, but he was like, just want to let you know, like, I'm not paying for this card. Like you are responsible. And that's when I got into trouble when I didn't have enough orders or I had to buy fabric or whatever, I'd put it on the card and be like, yeah, yeah, I'll pay it back. And then, you know, I slowly racked up a lot of debt that inevitably is when I had to call my brother. And that's, you know, 
that's when we began working together and the bag started to take off. So that was kind of the, all right, I'm out of my league mm-hmm. on the business side of stuff. And I actually need someone to help me. Can you actually talk through what some of those steps are? Because I think that a lot of people, when they're thinking about their pivot, go immediately to product and think, oh, well, I'll just make a product and I'll sell it. And I, and I think not having an understanding of the ebbs and flows, I think particularly of apparel business, I think ends up surprising a lot of people. Sounds like including you. Oh, it's surprising. (laughs) So I think with apparel, it's really, you know, if your dream is to be a designer, and again, I would give different advice if you're a t-shirt versus a couture gown. But I think that having your own website is incredibly important, whether you're selling anything or not. And I think today there's a lot more creativity in how you can take orders. You know, one of the things when NFTs were all the rage was the idea that you could treat the NFT as a token and, you know, buy this NFT, you will get the dress too, but you also get to see me in my studio working or at a photo shoot or access to things that money can't buy. And so I think that's a smart and powerful way to raise money. And I think that the idea of the Tupperware party is not dead. It's like, who do you have and know with circles of influence that could host and support you? When I look back, there was a woman in Los Angeles that would like put out wine and cheese and she's like, bring 75 bags. They'll be gone by the end of the night. And she would invite all her friends and they were excited and the bags were gone and I had cash. And so I think that as you begin to look at your business, there's a lot of non-traditional ideas you can use to do it. But so many women are like, oh, I'm starting an apparel company. I need to raise money. You know, and I think that that's the wrong approach because most investors know they will not see a return on an investment of just an apparel company. That's just not how it works. And so I say, start small, start focused, be the best in whatever it is, even if it's a white t-shirt and why. And from there, really make your network help support you and work for you. She continued to build and grow, but slower than she wanted. She craved another big break. And that's when she came up with her iconic morning after bag. You know that one, the perfectly disheveled, can fit everything, but looks like an it girl would carry it bag. And people took notice of what's now known as the iconic morning after bag. Now, the original morning after bag was very popular in the mid-2000s, most notably carried by celebrities Hayden Panettiere and Lindsay Lohan. This is honestly one of my favorite bags just because the functionality of this bag is great. Um, I had just launched the bag. It had a heat and a momentum that I never had with the apparel. It hit a nerve with women in a way that you can only hope happens to everyone. And switching to bags, that's a much more expensive product like for you to make. Yes. Was that a decision based on design, based on percentage return? Like what was that decision for you? The decision for the bag was really about Jenna came back to me. She said, I'm going to be in a feature film. The character wears the bag the entire time. You will not have seen this film because it went straight to DVD, sadly. Okay, I was about to ask you which film. It's called Touched. <laughs> Bag did not make it to set. It was delivered two hours late. They started filming. It, it was devastating. When I say I was like, like the assistant called, she's like, where is the bag? And I was like, I don't know. And then it arrived and she's like, we started shooting with another bag. And I was like, can you redo it? She was like, no. So my heart just broke It was terrible. You. I was like on the corner of like Fifth Avenue near Henry Bendel or wherever that store just was like pacing back and forth while I was on the phone with her. And I was like, well, I just 
I just bought a really expensive bag, my first, you know, I made her a sample, I made me a sample. And then I noticed as I was wearing the sample, so many women were stopping me on the street, asking me about, you know, the bag. And I thought there's something here. Let's see what happens. So a dear friend of mine who was a stylist that I knew through the industry was like, I'm going to have Daily Candy write about it. And we're going to put it in this store that I know in LA called Satine, which is like the go-to store for celebrities. And they ordered 12. Daily Candy wrote about it, sold out in like 10 minutes. Pretty soon, it girls everywhere were carrying the bag. Lindsay Lohan was photographed with it and it began to fly off the shelves faster than she could keep up with. So she turned back to her dad looking for financing to keep up with the orders. And so I went back to my dad. I was like, all right, I'm not a loser anymore. I actually have something that's working. Do you want to loan me just a little bit more money to make the next production run? He's like, absolutely not. Like, how are you paying the credit card? Because I'm seeing the bills and the the balance isn't really going down that much. It's like $100 a month. But this this is 60 grand that you've spent. I was like, all right, I'll talk to you later. Bye. So I called my brother and my brother had basic business questions. Is there an LLC? Do you have a tax ID number? All that, whatever. And the original intent wasn't like, all right, now we're partners. He was just kind of helping me through. He was advancing me capital. He was in the software world. He has a software company. And when he could see the numbers start to really like the orders coming in, like really growing, he was like, oh, there's something here. And he felt comfortable enough with the trajectory of the business that he put his credit card as, you know, the funding of things. And then it was his house. He mortgaged his house because we could not get a loan. And the whole VC private equity game hadn't even really started in our industry yet. So we waited seven years before we took outside capital. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. We started talking about this incident. Drugs and uh, officials cover up <laughs> you couldn't believe it from iheart podcasts it's like the police knew who he was before they got here a story about money power and corruption the medical school dean at usc was leading a secret double life he's breathing right now yes he's absolutely breathing i'm a doctor actually there's no way that that guy's a doctor i'm paul pringle and i'm an investigative reporter for the la times This is the story of an investigation that starts in a hotel room in Pasadena, California, and reaches all the way to the top of two of the most powerful institutions in the city of Los Angeles. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. This is Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption. We're always going to have predators. It's the good people who stand by and do nothing that allow them to flourish. Listen to Fallen Angels. A story of California corruption on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Across Generations, where the voices of Black women unite in powerful conversations. I'm your host, Tiffany Cross. Tiffany Cross. I want you all to join me and be a part of sisterhood, friendship, wisdom, and laughter. In every episode, we gather a seasoned elder. But even with a child, there's no such thing as the wrong thing if you love them. 
myself as the middle generation, I don't feel like I have to get married at this big age in life, but it is a desire I have and something that I've navigated in dating and a vibrant young soul for engaging intergenerational conversations. I'm very jealous of your generation (laughs) that didn't have to deal with Instagram and Tinder. This is Across Generations, where Black women's voices unite, and together, you know how we do, we create magic. magic. Listen to Across Generations podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. She continued to bootstrap, barely paying herself a salary, and supplementing her growing business with other work. I supplemented my t-shirt years with styling. I was a stylist. Mm -hmm. I did Heidi Klum for the first season of Project Runway. They were like, all right, we have $1,000 for 10 episodes and no budget for wardrobe. Do you want this great job? (laughs) I was like, yes. I was begging people like, I would call Chanel and like all these things and everyone would shut the door in my face. To lend her? Yes. And they didn't even want to lend her to put her on like TV. it was like reality TV, Project Runway. Like, that sounds terrible. <gasps> it was in reality TV. It was like new and dirty and, you yeah. know, like beneath people. Yeah. Um, so I had to like rub pennies together to like get her to look good. I even put her in a lot of my stuff at the time. Um, anyway, so that that made me some money. I mean, that felt like That's actually important to me. kind of an opportunity to put you in her clothes. Oh, no, it was great. Did that help? Was that publicity that actually helps the line? Was that exposure that helped? I mean, it was nice because I could use it when I go to a store like, oh, Heidi Klum wearing my shirt, Patrick, you know, like I could, when the, when the series became a success, I could use it. Working with families complicated. Yeah. How's it been? So we sold the business February of last year. So he is now just an advisor, but I think we had the building years were incredible. He was in his lane. I was in mine. And then when we each figured out our own areas and like started giving each other feedback and advice in each other's lanes, the sparks would fly. And so we had a lot of tough times where we weren't speaking and not getting along and fighting pretty badly. We got a business therapist basically to help us, you know, get back on the same page. And we would do that once a year as like vomit it all out and hopefully come to some sort of alignment. But it was it took a toll on our relationship for sure. Still, they were clearly a good team. Eventually, the brand had grown to over 100 million in sales and they decided to bring on a new president. We brought in this this president that we brought her in very early on. Oh, we brought her in before we could afford to like pay me. My brother was like, add up your rent and your ramen budget and let me know what that totals. And I was like, it's $23,000 a year. He's like, great, that's your salary. (laughs) (laughs) And so then we paid her and then he didn't take a salary because he was making money from his software. So we brought her in, in what year was it? 2007, I believe. Mm, There's like a two year span, but at its height, we were doing 110 million in sales and we probably had a hundred employees. It was unbearable unbearable how the pressure the stress all of it managing a team of 18 people and being all in as a designer and then expected to travel to 30 cities do the waving and the trunk shows be the face of social you know be a mother it was untenable so you started having kids Mm -hmm. and at what point did you feel like i can't keep this whole portfolio this 18 person reporting system is Not going to cut it. So I was about to go on maternity leave with baby number three. It was 2018. And I had been chasing this idea of I just need another hit. 
I just need a big hit. So we had this big growth surge with this crossbody that was 195. So I was like me and the team all day long. What's the next one? What's the next one? Okay, we got it. Let's replicate it exactly how we did the last one and get on this person, this person. And it wasn't working. And I was like banging my head against the wall. And then I was like, maybe I don't have it anymore. Maybe I'm just not cut out for this. Or maybe there's someone more talented than me. And I was just like circling. And there was a woman at the company who had been designing the men's line under my brother. And he's like, why don't you like her run things for a little bit while you go out and she'll offer a fresh perspective. And I was like, take it. I'm fucking tired. (laughs) It's been a long journey. It was 13 years at that point. And so I really left and I handed her off like, here are my mood boards for the next six seasons. Here's everything. I tied it with a bow. She was like, great put it in the trash as soon as I left the room and I went out on leave. And we'd also hired someone we thought was going to be the most incredible person in marketing. And she had a doctorate and I was like, well, what do I know? Like this woman is clearly learned. So when I got back, I felt like a stranger in my own company. And the, the marketing person literally said to me, my job would be easier if you didn't exist. The word stung, but it forced her to take a step back and see a larger issue where she could have an impact. Empowering female founders. So by that time, I only had to have one design meeting a week at the time. And I had a lot more time on my hands. And so I was like, great, you know, I'll do more speaking. And, you know, that's when I really was like, wow, women are not paid equally. Like I'm in an industry where it's women bashing women, but I had no idea that when you peel outside of the fashion industry, like there's another struggle going on that I really didn't know about. And so to hear about wage inequality and, you know, more men named John than women and CEOs, like I was just like, holy shit. I thought we were just, I thought it was just women being terrible to women. I didn't know anything else. How did you find out about it? Like you were still in the same industry. You were still in your company. Yeah, but I was desperate to make connections. And this started earlier in like 2016 with women outside of my industry. Mm -hmm. So I would host these dinners at my store and like have women like the president of the WMBA, the, you know, the private wealth investor for Chase and, you know, a magazine editor or just people outside of my world. And I would hear them talk and I was like, oh, shit, you know, yeah. there needs to be a way to support women more. What do you think you were chasing by starting this this dinner series? I was chasing a community and a camaraderie that I wasn't able to get within my industry. Mm-hmm. And I was hungry for outside perspectives. Now, the timing is striking me as interesting as looking for a community of women, because when I started this podcast, I had an anticipation that a lot of women's kind of dark moment that led to their pivot, like might be COVID or might be like whatever, there's like personal thing that happened to them. In my case, it was having a lot of kids all at the same time. What I did not anticipate is that I hear often, more often than I thought, is 2016, the election of Donald Trump as something that really changed a lot of women's perspectives. Yeah. I just hear it much more often than I anticipated. Yeah. So that is the same year that you started these dinners. Do you think even if it wasn't the election in general, just sort of like the context that led you to start them? It's a good question. I I don't know if it was a conscious thing. It just felt like I was suffocating in my own industry and it was so not supportive. I remember being on air with another designer and the interviewer said, Rebecca, you make my favorite dress. And 
then I was cut out of the segment and I thought, wow, I really must have like done a shitty job as a guest. And I saw the producer a couple weeks later. She's like, I'm so sorry we had to cut you. Like she's best friends with my boss. And that designer was so offended that she wasn't the favorite designer that she had you cut out. And I was like, this is gross. You know, in 2016, I was two years postpartum. I was like, you know, getting myself back together and out there. And so two years of meeting and talking and being around women. Then when I had the time, I was like, we, sh- I need to do something to support. So what was the first project that you jumped into in 2018? Once you, you're back from maternity leave and you realized I can only do one design meeting a week. I've got more time. Well, I said to this uh, really smart marketing person, I was like, so what's our plan? She's like, well, we, we are going to use you in social, but not yet. And I was like, okay, now what do I do? So I had like two weeks of ladies who lunch and I was like, I'm going crazy. Like I can't do this. And so she said, we should start a podcast. I said, well, I wanted to start a podcast two years ago and I was told it was not a good idea. And she's like, it's a great idea. And I was like, great, I'm on it. And so I began the process of figuring out how to do that. And then we were at a party for it was like a rooftop event for some congresswoman or some someone to get elected. And I just remember going, I need to find a way to make women rich. And the only way that I know how is if we can know who they are, we can have a community around them and we can support them with education. And so I just remember thinking about this idea. And I said to a woman on the team, I was like, what do you think about this idea? I was on the council for women and girls with Melissa DeRosa and the governor. And I was like, I'm going to bring this to the state and the state should have a state seal that recognizes women-owned businesses and blah, blah, blah. And the red tape and the calls and the just ad nauseum. And I remember, and I just reconnected with her today, a woman who is an executive director on the committee was like, why are you asking the state's permission? Just do this yourself. And I was like, fuck yeah, I'm doing it for myself. And that's when I took it into my hands and I said, this has to launch. The reason why I wanted to start Female Founder Collective was I wanted there to be some recognizable symbol where we as females could support and know who is running the business. I couldn't be more excited to be a part of the Female Founder Collective and really give women all across America and hopefully the world the opportunity to recognize female-made, female-supported and female-powered brands. And a longtime supporter who was at IMG, Leslie Russo, was like, I'm going to put everything behind this. So you get the photographer, the makeup, the hair, like everything's covered. We'll shoot it. We'll launch it with a panel at Fashion Week. And I had a website with like, leave your email here if you'd like our application. And that was it. That was all we had. (laughs) It was me and my assistant at the time. So that's, but I mean, that's so interesting that you launched it within the context of an industry that you were actually trying to get out of. Right. But I needed the eyeballs and the press and media around that thing I felt to get momentum. So did you launch with a cohort or you just launched with an idea? I launched with an idea, apply here. We'd send you the form. We'd review it. If you passed, you were in. And then what you were in was like, we were making it up at the time. But there's members that are still around from that time, which is is really nice. We're five years old. So how did you start to feel like it was becoming the hitting mass? So you had the community that you wanted. So in the first, I'd say two weeks, we hit 3,000 applications. And I was like, oh, shit, we have to do something with this now. So the first step was, okay, here's this, you know, once we've approved and vetted you, here's the seal so you can place it on your website or your products. That was kind of most important. And then it was like, well, we need a day. Like, we need an event. And I was about three months in when I met my co-founder and CEO, Allie Wyatt. 
and she came on and she had been at girl boss. She, she was the CEO of girl boss. And so she knew how to like structure this. So we started planning female founders day, which ended up being in uh, March of 2019. So all of our focus went to like, all right, community you're in. And our first big kickoff is going to be in March and we're going to have a day where it's not a bunch of women just talking on panels because you can get that from anyone, but we're going to have vetted experts giving you 90 minute workshops on whatever topic is your pain point. And so we kind of have, you know, we had our hero keynotes and then the day was like, what's pick your poison. Mm -hmm. And so after that, then we said, okay, our next event is this. And then we were able to have enough kind of community events and then online events that that was kind of how we started. Rebecca spent most of her time building Female Founder Collective, letting her eponymous brand run without her until it couldn't any longer things within the business shifted. I got rid of the uh, the two ladies. The business needed me really back. And so I by that time, I had a CEO, co-founder, I had a head of operations. And so I was like, all right, I'm going to be focusing my attention back into my company again. I felt like it was at a space where when Allie and I came together, she was like, I really want to be the CEO and I really want to run this day to day. Like, what part do you want in it? Because it won't work if we both want to do that. And I was like, great. I want to help with high level strategy goals, pull in big contacts and like use my network to really amplify this. But I don't want to be in the day to day of managing the daily tasks. I already have this other job. So I think for me, it worked out that I could then turn my attention back to Rebecca Minkoff and still be involved, but not on the nitty gritty. Yeah, like putting the right team together in each place yep. for you to be at your best and highest use in both. Correct. So what was one point where at the time you're like, okay, this is really terrible. This is like a low point for me. And now in retrospect, you see it as having really set you up for the success that you have now. I think the low point was that day that I got back that she said that to me and that that person and her, and let's say there was a total of three were there for, let's say, nine months and feeling like I was a complete and total stranger in my own company with no power. And people say, but this was your company. Like, how did you have no power? And I'm like, at a certain point, you have a board, you have, you know, my brother was aligned with them because he thought that they knew what they were doing. And so I would be like, well, listen to me, you know? And like one day I found out that the speak had changed. It was like, we're loving this. And I was like, no, the caption is from me to the customer. It's not we. And they're like, well, she said to change it. I'd be like, I'm erased. And that was the worst time in my life. And, and what I have trouble rectifying is that awful woman inspired things that bring me joy. How did that awfulness from that, I got these two things, my podcast and Female Founder Collective. And so sometimes I'm like, I hate you, but thank you. You know, it's a very weird feeling. Yeah. No, I, I, I mean, I feel like it's like the whole premise of this <laughs> entire show that like at the time you think, oh my God, it can't get any worse than this. And I, I feel like you kind of need to get to like a real low in order for your perspective to shift. Because yeah. just as human beings, we just, we don't, change drastically without being forced to. Like it is not in our nature. Yeah, for sure. But it does give birth something totally new. Thank you so much for joining us. I really feel like this has gone by in one second. I could talk to you all day long. Thanks for having me. 
Rebecca continues to juggle it all as a mom of four, running her Rebecca Minkoff label while continuing to prioritize empowering women through the Female Founder Collective. If you're not already, head over to her podcast, Superwoman, and subscribe. I'm biased, but I think our episode together on Superwoman is one of the best. Be sure to follow Rebecca on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter at Rebecca Minkoff. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to this episode of She Pivots. If you made it this far, you're a true pivoter. So thanks for being part of this community. I hope you enjoyed this episode. And if you did, leave us a rating. Please be nice. Tell your friends about us. To learn more about our guests, follow us on Instagram at She Pivots the Podcast or sign up for our newsletter where you can get exclusive behind the scenes content or on our website, She Pivots the Podcast. Talk to you next week. Special thanks to the She Pivots team, executive producer, Emily Edavolosik, associate producer and social media connoisseur, Hannah Cousins, research director, Christine Dickison, events and logistics coordinator, Madeline Sinovic, and audio editor and mixer, Nina Pollock. I endorse She Pivots. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. The Elevation with Stephen Furtick podcast was created with you in mind. This is a podcast for those feeling discouraged or needing guidance from God. Together in this podcast, we'll dive deep into scripture, uncover the powerful truths that will help you rise above your limitations and embrace your full potential. We're here to equip you with the tools you need to conquer life's challenges. Listen to Elevation with Stephen Furtick every Sunday and Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.